Thank you, Lyndon. I have to say, it's so lovely to be among so many familiar faces and, and be home, like Lyndon said. Um, I didn't bring the weather with me. Um, so thank you for the welcome that you've put on for me for the weather. Um, someone said earlier that my dad would love to be here at the moment because there's so many trees down. So I'll tell dad that there's lots of tree lopping to be done back at home. Today I just wanted to share some of the story about Street, the organisation that I run that uh, Lyndon mentioned. But it started really with three meals and I want to share those meals with you. When I was 16, some of you will remember that my dad took us out to the Vanuatu to go and do a building project. Uh, dad decided that the three months out of school wouldn't be such a bad thing, that we could catch up on our lessons when we got back. And as we were going across to the little island that we were uh, going to live on for those three months, we had to transit through a, a small island called Tongoa. So our stop from Vela to Tongoa was with um, was was essentially this this phenomenal family who we'd never met before put us up in their tiny little village hut. And I still remember that meal that night. There was I think eight of them and five of us, and they fed us this what seemed like a very ghastly meal at the time, this kind of purple manioc and, and kind of strange vegetables that I'd never eaten. Um, and I still remember us all sitting around the table and they couldn't speak any English and we couldn't speak any Islam, but, but between all of us we seemed to get on fine. That night I slept in the room of, of uh, their daughter who was also 16 years old, so I was 16 years old at the time. And I still remember after that meal her making me feel phenomenally welcome in their home and in her bedroom. And the next morning as we were about to leave, she came out of her room and she offered me her island, one of her island dresses. A really, really brightly coloured, I think it was bright orange dress with great big kind of hibiscus flowers on it. And when I said to her, oh, it's okay, I've got clothes, you know, it's, it's fine, you know, thank you for, you know, for your gift, but, but I've already got clothes with me. And she said, no, I want you to have this dress, I have two. I stayed in her room and I knew that she only owned two things. She owned two dresses and one of them she had just offered me. And that was just such an extraordinarily pivotal moment for me in my life. Um, 16-year-old, you know, young, forming your own opinions about the world. But that moment of having someone who I'd only just met give me half of everything that they own in the world was something that has stuck with me forever and I would say is kind of the first significant thing that ever made me start to question what I wanted to do in the world. Her name is, uh, is Marilyn and I, I hope I get to kind of finish the story and tell you how that story ends because it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I met her many years later and I can tell you that later. So that was my first meal. That was the first kind of life, life-changing meal that I've had. Fast forward lots and lots of years, I'm now working for the CSIRO uh, in science communication and I went off to Vietnam uh, on holidays. I was there at Christmas 2000 and uh, for any of you who have been to southern Vietnam, uh, go down to the Mekong Delta. So I'd flown into Saigon, went down back on a little motorbike to uh, southern Vietnam to a tiny little village called Cantor. And Cantor is this, yeah, it, well, it's not a tiny village, it's actually quite a bit of sprawling kind of uh, Mekong uh, village or kind of city almost. 
And we had this beautiful meal. It'd been a really long day um, on the back of a motorbike, and we just wanted somewhere to go and find a nice, quiet meal and then go and sit in the local park. It was just coming on dark. So we had our meal and walked out into the little park that was right beside where we'd eaten. And there were a whole heap of little kids running around in the park. And I've always been a child at heart, so I got in there and started playing, I think, hacky sack and, and you know, soccer with them. And there was a whole bunch of little kids that I started to teach how to thumb wrestle. So we thumb wrestled and thumb wrestled, and we kept on doing this for quite some time as the sun was coming down. And there was one little boy that I ended up thumb wrestling with on, on the bench. So we're on this little park bench together, thumb wrestling, and in the end, all of the other children went off into the night, and this little boy stayed sitting beside me. I think he was probably between probably seven and ten. Um, tiny little boy, tiny, tiny little hand, and in the end, we just sat on the park bench together with his little hand in mine. I couldn't once again speak any Vietnamese, and he couldn't speak any English. And I sat there, and sat there, and sat there, and wondered why he wasn't running home like all the other kids were. And I'm not sure how long it took me to realise that he wasn't going home because this was home. And I'm not sure how much longer again it took me to realise that underneath the park bench that we were sitting on was a little piece of cardboard. And he was very patiently waiting for me to get off his bed. And that was his bed. I was sitting on his bed, he was patiently waiting for me to leave. And I remember sitting there thinking, what can I, as a Western woman, do for a 10-year-old or tiny little child in Vietnam, a little homeless boy living in a park by himself? And I remember that night off in my accommodation, lying awake all night, just watching the fan go round and round and round and thinking, what is my responsibility? as someone from a different country to this small boy. And I didn't know the answer at that stage, but I sure as hell knew that this was part of my planet, part of my responsibility as well. That was meal number two. Fast forward again, uh, I'm back in Vietnam, 2000, uh, 2004. I'd gone over, I was still working at the CSIRO, I'd gone over to do some volunteer work uh, for three months uh, on a disability project in, in central Vietnam. And I was in Hanoi at the time and walked into a cafe. And I, as I sat down to order my meal, I still remember what I ordered. I ordered the spring rolls with tamarind sauce, um, ordered my meal, and as I was waiting for it, there was a tiny little postcard that was on the table. And the little postcard talked about this cafe being a social enterprise that was helping homeless young people get training and get a livelihood. And it was, for me, this phenomenal moment of realising that the young man who had just served me had been homeless and the meal that I was just about to eat was part of me being able to help stop his homelessness. And for me, it was just, it was a light bulb moment. It was this epiphany in realising that the traditional ways that we solve social problems, for me, had only been around charity. So, you know, my family had always done lots of donating and lots of projects with address. So, you know, you get money from here, you go over, you do a flying build, you, you know, then you come back here. Or maybe you go and do some kind of missionary service. So there's lots of ways that I've seen kind of in front of me of solving social problems. But it never, ever had ever crossed my mind that one of the ways that we can solve social problems, and particularly large and tractable ones, is using the marketplace. 
my parents had been in you know, small business, so they run you know tiny little tree lopping business, as you all know. But I never considered that you could change the world using a tree lopping business, or that you could change the world running cafes. It's kind of funny now that I think about it, but I never kind of connected the dots between where I worked for years and years at Sanitarium, and paying my way through university and seeing the business that was operating, but very much had kind of health and a social mission at its core. But for me, that moment of having that meal in that cafe and realising that you can run a cafe to stop homelessness, for me, that was just phenomenal. My partner, Kate, was still working back in Canberra. And that night I rang her and I said, I really, really have found what I want to do for the rest of my life. And we have to move here to Vietnam and I know the project that I want to work on. And she said to me, can you just wait till I get to Vietnam in a couple of months and we can discuss it? By the time she arrived in Vietnam to see me a couple of months later, I was so sold on the, the idea of working for Kojo, so that was the name of the organisation. Probably some of you have been if you've been to Vietnam before. And for me, I'd already decided in my mind that that was what I wanted to do. So I took my long service leave from the CSIRO on the day that was due and went and worked for Koto. And for two years, both of us were on the board of Koto with that organisation. And one of the challenges was is if you can build one little cafe that can help this many people uh, stop homelessness, you know, stop homelessness for this many people, well, can you build two and can you build three? Can you build four? That was the challenge that I, I guess that I, that I embarked upon when I went to Koto. And what became really clear, I guess, was that it's really, really hard to scale something that's never been designed in the first place to scale. Um, that organisation was doing amazing things, but to try and replicate it was, was proving really difficult. So eventually we decided to bite the bullet and come back to Australia and start our own organisation. That organisation, uh, three weeks ago, served its millionth customer. So it's starting to grow. It's starting to grow the way that we hoped it could. But let me tell you kind of how it started. It started with very, very humble beginnings. It was one tiny little food cart at Federation Square in Melbourne. Um, it was an awful business model. Um, it took about the weather here. The weather there is a lot more unpredictable and a lot more cold. And what we did is pushed out that first little food cart on the Federation Square and as soon as the pouring rain came down, the middle of winter came, it became obvious that we had a small business model. So we had our first nine homeless young people standing out in the rain with this little cart uh, and quite quickly we had to work out how we were going to uh, adopt our, our business model. So I won't take you through all of that, that's kind of all process and kind of you know, boring and stuff, but I'll tell you where we're at now. As an organisation we've now built having seven hospitality businesses. Five of those are cafes. Um, one, is the, one of those is a coffee roastery, and one's uh, and one's a catering company. And the, and all of those businesses are designed to alleviate homelessness for young people. Um, let me tell you about the kind of young people that we work with. So this last Wednesday night, we graduated another seven people. Mafuz is the young man who has just come out of asylum at the detention centre here. And he was the boy that narrowly missed the same fate of his father, which was the Taliban coming into their house in the middle of the night and taking his father away. He was a young man that, that 
that their families are better than they had their property to try and have one person survive in that family and they put him on a boat and he ended up here in Australia. And those young people, that was one young person who graduated with us on Wednesday night. I think his future will be really different, hopefully, to, to what it was going to be under the Taliban. He hopes, naturally, to bring the rest of his family here as well. Andy was a young man on the very first day of the street that I met, and we were standing on the front steps. It was the first day a young person had ever walked into our organisation, so he was the first young man that I ever spoke to. Andy and I were just found ourselves on the streets uh, outside our registered training organisation where our hospitality training happens. And because it was the first young people and we were trying to put their uniforms on, their hospitality uniforms on for the very first time, we were undoing all the bags and trying to get all the uniforms out before they went off into class for the very first time. And you know the, the chef's jackets that have got kind of two, two rows of buttons on them? He and I were trying to figure out his buttons and then he had two rows of buttons and the two of us were trying to do up his buttons and work out how the wretched things worked and how his special, his special kind of scarf went on around his neck. And as he was doing up his buttons, his hands were shaking and they were shaking and shaking. And I said, it's okay, we're really scared too. You guys are our first class. It's the first day that, you know, it's a big day for you, but it's also a big day for us. And he said, oh, it's not so much that it's a big day and, and you know, the fact that we're putting on a new uniform for him, for me, but he pointed straight across the road, which is a park, and the park straight across the road had been home for him. And he said, I just can't believe that today I'm walking in this door and this is where home has been, in that park. And he came to us as a young mice addict. He'd been home, or he'd been out of home for a very long time. He, his vice addiction had happened. Uh, he started off with marijuana, uh, early experimentation and also some alcoholism. But like most of our young people, it started with stuff that was happening at home. The majority of the young people that we see at street have come from families of intergenerational poverty and often domestic violence. And I was saying to uh, one of my friends this, this afternoon that if there's one thing that we could change in this country to stop the stem of drug addiction and mental health and, and homelessness, it would be to stop having people fighting in their homes and for men to stop beating women. That's kind of the reality. The most dangerous thing that you can do as a woman under 45, um, the, the most probable way you're going to die or get a disability in this country as a woman is to be beaten by your intimate partner. So what we see is we constantly see the results of that coming the next generation now with young people who end up on the streets. Andy dropped into our organisation, it was probably two months ago, to come and have a chat to us and just tell us that he's now in uh, rental accommodation with his girlfriend. This week he Facebooked me and sent me a picture of what he and his girlfriend were making for, for dinner, the quiche they just made. Um, Andy's never had another night of homelessness. And he's held down a job in hospitality and retail for the last five years since he graduated with us. But the challenge is that they're just two of 300 young people that we've had in our program. And Australia has 105,000 homeless people. And the majority of those are young people between the age of 12 and 25. So the challenge is, how do we solve an intractable problem, or a seemingly intractable problem on that scale? And 
And what strikes me again and again is that we're not harnessing all the things at our disposal. We're, we're seeing traditional charity as the only way that we can solve it, or we're, we're expecting someone else to solve it. It's the problem of, you know, it's the problem of governments or local uh, non-government organisations. And I, I get so excited about the fact that we, as as consumers, can use the dollars that we're already been spending on goods and services to start to, to solve the problem. So. So for me, like, if I was to say, you know, what am I evangelical about? It's about social enterprise. It's it's about being able to solve really tricky, wicked problems using the marketplace, not just using the philanthropic dollars. Because as soon as we start to think about all of the things that we spend our money on and think about how can we harness those dollars in the marketplace, that every single time we start to open up our wallet, we become part of the solution of solving the social issues that we want to solve as well. So, so the fact that we've proven so far that 300 young lives can be changed by selling a million meals, to me, is just the start of what's possible. And there's so many examples of extraordinary social enterprises in this country starting to prove that again and again. The young people that I talk about... We, when we first built Street, we were, we were concentrating on stopping their homelessness. For them, their most critical need was that they had a roof over their head, or so we thought. So for us, it was about how do you make sure that, yes, you get them a job, but the ultimate aim of getting the job was to make sure that they could pay their rent and that they could keep a house longer term. To, to us, that seemed really logical. If, you, if you've got a whole bunch of young people who need homes, you've got to find the accommodation, but they can't get an accommodation until, keep accommodation until they've got a wage. They can't get a wage until they've got a job. They can't get a job until they've got skills. So all of those things kind of made sense to us. And we also knew that you couldn't get skills and you couldn't hold down a job and do any of those things if there's a whole bunch of personal things that are happening for you individually. So. It's hard to hold down the job if you've still got a drug and alcohol issue. It's hard to hold down the job if your mental health stuff is cropping up. So we knew we were going to have to do some, some major work in that area too. But it seemed to us to be fairly logical that the end point was stopping homelessness and finding accommodation for young people. Two years ago we went back and we spoke to a whole bunch of the young people who had come through our program and we said... We know in our lives we've had success with you because you are now in a job and you've got a home and you're stable and life's looking a lot better than it had in the past. But can you tell us in your words what has been the success here? Because what we wanted to understand is what are the things that they thought mattered the most? When they told us the list of things, the things that we thought were going to be on that list were on that list. We'd given them as training, so they had a certificate to in hospitality. We'd stopped their homelessness and we'd given them a roof over their heads and we'd found that. We'd helped them with their drug and alcohol issues. So all of the things that, that had been part of our plan were there. The thing I think that surprised us the most was that when we said what's... When we did the analysis of all the things they had said... The thing that was most important to them was the fact that they thought they belonged. Of course it was important to them that they had a roof over their heads and they now had a job. But when we, but again and again they said to us, it's so, it's so important to us that we feel like this is a place that wants us to be here. And I guess the thing that really stands out to me is that it's, that it's possible to give people homes 
or certain houses, it's harder to give people homes. And there's lots of people that don't have a home, but there's so many less, or so many more people again who feel like they're not at home. And for young people, for all of us, that sense of belonging and that, that connection to a community is actually one of the fundamental things that we need in life. That got me thinking on the plane coming here last night. Because when a friend of, uh, one, of my, one of my workmates had said to me, what are you doing for the weekend? I said, oh, I'm going home to Grawongs, but it's the small town that I grew up in. And I thought, isn't that interesting that, you know, it was my first thought that I'm going home. But it also struck me, I've spent, I spent my first 24 years in this community. And just even driving up here today, just the memories that came back of, you know, remembering my first really cart that went down, you know, the driveway when the last really, really big flood happened here. I still remember the canoes going up Avondale Drive. Um, I, I have so many memories of, of growing up in this community. For those of you who knew me probably when I was really tiny, my mum was the, the college nurse. Uh, I've got a photo standing just, just outside here. This, this wasn't built yet, but just outside girls' um, girls' um, dormitories here. And with my, I was three, and I had my little nurse's case, and my mum had made me a little cake. So I was off doing the nurses' rounds with her. I belonged to this community for 24 years, but then I stopped belonging. About the end of 2004, no, sorry, the end of 1994, I came out as being gay. And it was a moment that I'll never ever remember. I'll never forget, sorry. I wish, I wish the opposite was true. I was someone who was embedded in the community, and I still remember my parents being stopped at the local mindset shops to be asked, is it true, is Rebecca really gay? I remember people coming and saying, to my brothers, giving them a bit of a tough time. I remember a whole bunch of stuff happening. Even before I came out, I remember one of, I was a school captain in year 12, but one of the other prefects came out in year 12 as being gay. And he's, he's, he was asked to stop being a prefect, and he was told that he was going to be expelled from the school. And there was a whole bunch of things that had already kind of told me is, actually, you're not welcome in this community if you're gay. Many of us have left the community. So many of us. I know some of you have children or family here who have left this community for that same reason. And it strikes me again and again that there's so much stuff that can be done to make people feel like they belong. That it's actually not often the big stuff. It's often the little stuff. Sometimes it's the really, really little stuff. And it's that little stuff that makes... We know a difference with our people that we work with. It's the little stuff that, for most people, is bigger than the house that they've got and the qualifications that they've got, the job that they've got. It's that sense of connection to a community. And when I think about the, own, the population of young people that we could work with, what I see again and again is the number of young people who have ended up out of their families and on the streets because they had the courage to come out say, this is who I am, that I'm not straight, but please love me. And these young people are sent away from their families and their communities. 
I've got the very, very fortunate job of working with those young people. For me, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather be doing on the planet than working with a whole bunch of young people who feel like they haven't actually belonged somewhere. And seeing those young people and just thinking, you have got so much potential. The potential for you, if we give you the right supports and we give you the right nurturing, we give you the right skills, are unlimited. And we've got a situation at the moment where so many young people in this country are going to face long-term unemployment. And if you happen to be one of the really unlucky young people who finds yourself chronically homeless, unlike you and I who are going to live to 82 years of age, as that young person, your life expectancy will be 47. It's hard to imagine that in a country like ours that chronic homelessness is a death sentence and that a young person that just has so much potential and so much to offer their community, almost at 16 when they get to us, has been has got a terminal, you know, terminal death sentence, really. So I guess what I would love to challenge you guys is to think, first... First and foremost, how are they, who are the people in this community who feel like they don't belong? Who are the people that if we ask them about, do you actually feel like you belong to this community? Who are those people? And what's the stuff that we can do to make sure that every single person in this community always feels like they belong? And that you don't keep losing young people from this community who have so much to offer the community. But that this community doesn't stop at the front gates of Abermale. It's all about communities. <laughs> One of the things that I love about working with my team, and I now my, my team is now 40, and we have just the most phenomenally diverse team. But at the moment I struggle because my Muslim staff are not feeling like they belong in this community. That the Muslim staff that we have, even putting on your head scarf in the morning, means that I don't know if I'm going to be abused when I get on the train to go to work today. So there's just so many young people, so many people who feel like they're disconnected and need to belong. But the upside of all of that, I guess, is that all of us can do so much about that. What I hear when we talk to young people, when they tell us about, well, what matters to you? Most of the time it's tiny, kind, random acts of kindness. It's little bits of kindness. Young people who will talk about oh, going on their way to suicide today and I had a plan and I was going to suicide but it was a smile that I got from someone in the street that stopped me. All of those tiny little random acts of kindness that add up across a lifetime to keep us feel connected. That's why I guess I feel so fundamentally optimistic because what we have is a whole bunch of young people who have potential. We have a whole bunch of people who have got money in their wallets and can do little, you know, tiny random acts of kindness every day. And if I put all of that together in an equation, I think we've got so much to work with. So let me tell you why I'm fundamentally optimistic for our future as an organisation as well. Two years ago, uh, we did some media, and some of you might have seen the show on the ABC Wood Post Kitchen. Um, it was it was screened in 2012, and Poe, um, who, who had been, I think, the second runner-up in MasterChef a couple of years ago, 
Poe um, had heard about Street and she came and spent a week with the organisation and she followed some of our homeless, homeless young people back to the community, back to where they'd been sleeping rough. And when Poe told that story, the next morning we started to get a bunch of phone calls and one of those phone calls was a man who uh, was a baker and he said, I'd, I'd really like to do what I can. I'd like to see if there's an opportunity for us to maybe offer some of your young people bakery skills, because at the moment we train young people to be chefs and roosters. So he, he uh, said, well, why don't you come and visit me in my bakery? And I was assuming that his bakery was maybe a you know, tiny little baker's delight, just a kind of little hole in the walls of a bakery. I turned up uh, at, at to the suburb that his bakery and it may as well have been taken it was made, half the suburb was his bakery. Um, he is the provides all the artisan breads for Coles nationally. So you can imagine the scale of his artisan bakery. It's it's rather large. And on that very second meeting that we had, he put an offer on the table and said, what I'd love to do is I'd love to find a bakery or, or build you a bakery and put your name on the front and fill it with some of our bakers who can help train your young people and gift it to you. How would you feel about that? <laughs> the answer was quite obvious. I felt very good about that. <laughs> Almost two months later, a carbon copy conversation happened and I got a phone call. We were featured in the age and the, uh, a man picked up the phone and he said, we'd like to have a coffee with you tomorrow, one of your cafes. And I went to go and meet with him and it turned out that he was the, uh, the co-founder of the flight centre and he was very, very passionate about young people and all his philanthropic dollars went to stopping homelessness and helping young people who needed opportunities. And he was a young man who, who himself had been very badly bullied at school and had dropped out at school really early, but was phenomenally entrepreneurial. And so Jeff, on that first meeting, said, oh, well, I'd really like to become an advisor of yours. Um, could you, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to kind of share some of my, my business knowledge with you. And so what he did is he started to meet with me monthly. Uh, at that stage, there was no offer of money on the table, but over those months, he got to know us really well, he got to know me really well. And long story short, a couple of years ago, he uh, said, why don't we get serious about this? And he, and he bought us a two and a half million dollar property and said, this is my gift to you for the next 50 years, go and work magic in that building. So we're about to embark upon a major growth. We've just got to a million customers, but uh, this coming year we'll be in the centre. It's called Cromwell. Uh, it's the, the name of the street, and it's this almost 150-year-old uh, manor. And that manor, uh, up until fairly recently, has been a brothel. And we're turning that brothel into the most extraordinary youth centre. It'll have an artisan bakery funded by our bakery partners. It'll have... Uh, training academy for young people, it'll have our head office, it'll have a um, cafe, a catering company, and it will be like our major hub. From that site, we'll be able to train 250 young people each year. So at the moment, we're training 150, but at Cromwell Manor, we'll be able to train 250. That's just not enough because in, in Australia there's 105,000 homeless people. So my frustration is that you know we can get a little bit excited about 250 but we're not shifting the dial yet. And my impatience has been just how are we going to 
bring about large-scale change? How do we find pockets of, of you know, the solution? How do we scale this stuff? How do we bring about systematic and wide, widespread change? So our first goal that we've set ourselves as an organisation beyond the 250 young people that we can help in a year's time is to be able to sit down to every single meal that we have and take another young person off the streets that meal. The number of meals that we each have every year is 1,095. So the stretch to get us from 250 to 1,095 is going to be a big one. But then the stretch to get us from 1,095 to really shifting the dial on homelessness is once again a very, very big quantum leap for us. So the other meal that's significant to me was one that was had on Wednesday night. Seven young people graduated from our program. And to that graduation ceremony and meal came our philanthropist, the co-founder of the Fly Centre. And the offer that he put on the table to us on, on Wednesday night is, in his, I think to quote him exactly, was, let's get this thing cranky. So he's put another offer on the table and said, I want to help you scale this thing and start to get really serious about how much homelessness can we stop. Let's first of all concentrate on Victoria. So at the moment we're very in Melbourne, you know, we're the Melbourne CBD. But if we can help hundreds and hundreds, hopefully 1,095 young people in the CBD, what can we do across the whole of Victoria? And I'd like to hope in the coming years that we can say the same with New South Wales and Queensland and everywhere else. That, for me, is almost kind of pinch yourself sort of stuff. Uh, Kate and I have joked, you know, a number of years ago when, you know, I think every single grey hair that I've got now has come from cash flow. And uh, just, you know, the number of times that we've almost gone under as an organisation has been phenomenal. And I've said to her so many times, if only we could find a sugar daddy. Um, so we have our equivalent who said, let's actually get this thing cranking. So I'd like to hope that in the coming years that, you know, Mark, we're probably quite a long way off being Agra. We've got a few years to go until we're kind of getting there, but I'd like to hope that in these coming years that we can really make a huge difference for young people in our, in our country that need a home, but particularly need somewhere to feel at home. So thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.